Hello, and welcome to Matters of Engagement, a podcast exploring the complex world of patient engagement and partnership. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. Most of our episodes have been about engagement in institutional healthcare spaces, places like hospitals or research institutes. But of course, there are a multitude of other places where patient or service user engagement takes place. At some level, many engagement issues are the same everywhere, regardless of the location. There's always going to be tensions related to interpersonal dynamics, power relations, questions of representation and diversity, whether there's compensation and how new people are recruited, the list goes on. But depending on the context, engagement may also look and feel quite a bit different. And our featured discussion in this episode helps to illustrate this point. Our guests are Jen Broad and Paula Tukey. They work out of the South Riverdale Community Health Centre in East Toronto. Jen is the Program Manager of Harm Reduction and Hep C, and Paula is the Manager of Keep Six, a consumption and treatment service, which is a health service described as a place where people inject, snort, or orally consume pre-obtained drugs in a safe, hygienic, and welcoming environment under the supervision of trained staff. I've known both Jen and Paula for several years, and when we decided to do an episode or two on peer worker experiences, I knew they'd have lots to share. Yeah, and just to be clear, this episode is not about peer work per se. After we interviewed Lori Ross in our last episode about her work on peer researchers, well, we wanted to hear from people with peer work experience, from their own perspectives. We usually reserve this space for what we call patient partner reflections. And even though they're not patient partners, we're turning it over to Jen and Paula for their insights and reflections on their experiences with peer work. They're well positioned to do so as researchers as well. They co-authored a really interesting paper, actually more like a case study, with three other colleagues about the transition from client to peer worker. We'll put a link in the show notes. As you listen, we encourage you to tune in to their insights specific to engagement within a community that experiences persistent stigma and systemic discrimination. What we learned from talking to Jen and Paula is that engagement in certain health-related community services, like harm reduction programs, has different and possibly higher stakes for the people involved than what we typically think of as patient engagement in mainstream or organizational health services. And one more quick note, it's that peer work can sometimes be idealized and can be framed as a recovery or redemption narrative. We're not getting into any of that in this episode, but we wanted to mention it because Jen's journey from service user to peer worker to now program manager, well, it's really compelling. But we're not trying to hold it up as a model for what peer work is supposed to be or look like. And we don't get the sense that Jen is either. It's just, well, it's her actual experience, which gives important context to her insights. Okay, here's our discussion. The first voice you'll hear is Jen, followed closely by Paula. I actually met Paula when I first came to the Toronto Community Hep C program as a client through various opportunities and trainings. I was eventually hired as a community support worker. And in, in that role, Paula was the, uh, she wasn't, she hates it when I say she was my boss, but really she was. <laughs> 
yeah, we, you know, we met uh, initially as a, as a worker-client relationship and then through the various opportunities through the HEPSI program, uh, where it was the advisory, peer training, public speaking, you know, various projects. Uh, Jen always was interested in participating and, and took on things more and more. So when I left uh, my position on a HEPSI program and uh, took on the managerial role, Jen actually got hired to, to replace me in the program. So then Jen took on the responsibility of supporting and mentoring the other HEPSI um, community workers who were again recruited from a clientele from the clients of the program who also went through the various opportunities and kind of build their skills to to be able to uh, do the work i worked as a registered nurse for a number of years both here in canada and in the states but i also have the lived experience of drug use um, adversity trauma all of those things I think one thing that South Riverdale does really well is it tries to create opportunities for people who do have the lived experience because that's a it's very valuable. There's just things that can't be taught in school. They put quite a heavy weight on lived experience. But of course, there are other things that you have to be able to, to do and navigate and manage, right? Particularly as you start going up the ladder, as I have, you have to be able to navigate certain systems. So actually, have for me, having that education was really helpful. I kind of know what's expected, right? Like I know I have to call into work when I'm not going to be there. I have to, you know, navigate different programs on computers and... You know, I have to print stuff up and just, you know, those things. But those were all things that actually can be taught. Everybody has some lived experience. And I, I think that's actually true of the public at large, right? You know, the public at large has had trauma, uh, traumatizing, you know, things happen to them. The public at large, you know, whether they care to admit it, has probably also dabbled in drug use. We don't consider, you know, anything that we take to try and alter our mentation or to make us feel better is drug use. And it's no different. It's just, I think, the differences in how we tend to vilify those that don't handle the coping mechanism, if you, if you will, as well as others. And, um, and then we also tend to vilify people in, who live in poverty. There's a lot of like intersectionality and complicating factors, but I think they're all there. It's interesting because it's something that I've kind of been struggling with around, I, I think, for sure, my lived experience makes me who I am. I fear, and I mean, when we start talking about like stigma and discrimination, you know, I have all those things in my lived experience that are very stigmatizing and discriminatory. And there's a certain when you disclose as part of your story, you're hoping that the person or the people or the group that you're disclosing to is not going to be 
stigmatizing and discriminatory towards you. Particularly as I moved up, I feel less and less inclined to want to do that because I'm afraid I'm not going to be taken seriously. And I don't want it to define who I am. It's only a small part of, of me. Um, it certainly has a huge impact on, you know, how I can do the work and also has a huge impact on how I can relate to others who are also, in, you know, involved in this work who have the same kind of experiences that I have. But I like sometimes worry about a manager from an outside agency, maybe not taking me as seriously. We shouldn't be putting limitations on people just because where they come from and give opportunities and, and see who has the interest and, you know, the ability with support and mentorship to take on challenges and, and you know, what, what to do with that. But the credit really goes always to the individual who takes that on because, like Jen said, I mean, it's, it's never a condition of the employment or the opportunity that we give that you have to do it. And I, I have not really experienced, you know, people kind of constantly going back to where actually people came from. Yeah, like I said, I think that would be inappropriate. You know, interestingly enough, when I when I applied for this job, that posting went up three times. The first time I was like, you know, and a couple of people said, oh, you should go apply. And I'm like, yeah, no, they're not going to hire me. You know, and then the second time I was like, nah, I don't think so. And the third time I was like, maybe somebody's trying to tell me something, you know? So, so then I did apply and um, well, as it turns out, here I am. <laughs> and I will say like at South Riverdale, I really had a Sally Field moment, you know, where she's like, you like me, you really, really like me. I can't even tell you, like, I can't understate that feeling that I had because everybody seemed to be in my corner. I didn't hear scuttlebutt, like, oh, who does she think she is? You know, everybody was like really, really supportive and not just like people who had at one time been my peers, but like also like upper management and senior management. It hasn't happened at South Riverdale, but I do sometimes think there's a bit of tokenism, particularly like, oh, we're putting on a, you know, a conference or we're putting on um, a presentation. And we really need to have a person with lived experience and we're going to have them tell the story, their story. I think the thing that we have to be mindful of and that we have to remember is there has to be a purpose to the story. You know, it's not just telling the story for the sake of telling the story, right? And I think that does happen sometimes, you know, and then people, not South Riverdale, but then people sort of pat themselves on the back and like, look, 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 we, we involve some of it. And I think that also can be traumatizing. Like, what is the point sometimes of what we're asking people to do? 
And I think we have to be really thoughtful and mindful about that. I always felt uh, that it was our responsibility as people who engage with other people, especially people who have less access to information and understanding of how these engagements work. I think it's our responsibility when asking someone to come and speak to something to also support them and educate them that they don't have to. They don't have to do it at all. They don't have to disclose anything that they don't want to disclose. Sometimes I kind of have a feeling that when people come from really disadvantaged places and they haven't been communicated their value and they don't feel that they have value when they're asked to do something like that suddenly their experience becomes their currency and they might feel that they have to share all the really awful things that happen to them despite of how uh, re-traumatizing it can be and so anytime I was asked as a worker to see whether any service users or clients have, you know, are interested to participate in a forum where they would be talking about some experiences from their life. Uh, it was it was kind of important for me to talk about also the cost of that or the unintended consequences of, you know, sharing yourself in a way that actually at the end does not feel okay. I also like to remind people that information can be used as a weapon and even though if the initial intention seems positive and, and you know, we kind of feel that we can contribute to some kind of greater good by understanding or, you know, helping with understanding or education of others, it is not worth it at the cost of somebody walking away feeling worse than they came to it and feeling violated. And so I, th I think that is a very important piece. I remember being at a conference and uh, I came up it's somewhere on some video that I said it and there I was larger than life just boom and saying this like something about drug use I can't remember exactly what it was and, and feeling kind of like oh I, I don't want that up there. I myself have been stigmatized and, and discriminated against. Despite how far up the ladder I go, I think sometimes I worry that I'm still, despite like, you know, having gone through that and not, not risen above it, but like found a way to be positive and to be an agent for change. I still worry sometimes because not everybody is understanding. And also part of that is my own, sort of my own self-reflection and my own sometimes self-doubt around whether I deserve to be in this position. And so I feel like if I were to talk about it now, it's not that I would, I would maybe say it a little bit differently. So it's not quite so glaring. It felt very glaring in the moment. You know, it wasn't like I was like, okay, well, this is where I want to end up. Um, so it didn't occur to me in that moment to, you know, censor how I talk or what I say. And that's not the case today.
you know, I'm still very open, but I still, I'm a little bit more cognizant of what it is I'm saying and how that might come across. It's finding that balance between uh, what I'm doing now, my lived experience, and being okay with where I've been and where I am. And that, that's also a part of that. This has become increasingly sort of more important to keep in mind because more and more events are recorded. It also is more public than it used to be, you know, like when, when we say something and, and it gets posted on YouTube, then we totally lose control over who is viewing it, what context do they see it in, do they see the context that this has been, you know, set in. Um, I think that also plays a role for me anyway, that it's less anonymous, it it, it is more public. Uh, so, you know, as sort of we participate in forums that are more public and more accessible to people who might be seeing it or hearing it out of context, uh, it also needs to be considered. I think there are a lot of places that hire peers or people with lived experience or, you know, who identify in that way, not everybody does it well. In fact, there are a remarkable many that don't do it well. Now, I don't think that that's their intent. It is a lot of work. You know, it's not just enough to hire somebody with lived experience, right? There's a lot, there's a lot that goes in behind it. Oh yeah, and there's there's a lot that goes or should go behind it before you actually hire somebody with lived experience. And I think that's uh, something that doesn't always happen well. You know, hopefully you, you can create a small community of peers of their own where, uh, you know, that's a learning um, place where people don't feel stigmatized and shamed and discriminated because of the experiences that they have. And as a matter of fact, kind of flipping it upside down, it is the experiences that people have is the, is the strength why we are interested in engaging with them is, you know, for them to be able to teach us and bring, bring their experiences as a skill or how to turn that experience into a skill. If I take a look at sort of my journey uh, from when I say first met Paula to where I am now, and if I actually correlate that to my drug use, my financial situation, my housing situation absolutely improved. I mean, from being in, you know, marginally housed um, to at times homeless to like actually in my own place. And, you know, if I take a look at my drug use, that has actually through, through these, all these opportunities that has actually decreased too. And not only how often I, but how I use drugs, like not being as street involved, that changed as, as, a, as more opportunities came my way. So I may have still used drugs, but the way in which I used was very different. And to the point now where I don't use drugs because, well, you know, frankly, I, I don't have any space for it. There's no room for it. I'm in a place now where I'm like, I want to stay here. And if I want to stay here, 
I just can't use drugs. That's, that's a personal decision that I've made for myself. I think there is actually um, a big difference between the CANEC uh, patient advisory board from the Hep C program and the CANEC advisory board that a hospital would have. All the members, all the members were the, were the clients and uh, the chair is the client as well is is a board member who's a client so this is not a mixed board this is not a board where you have like the representation of various uh, you know capacities roles and then a couple of patients i used to uh, attend meetings that were like that and I was kind of the, the frontline community rep and I was the token frontline worker and I did not feel that I was empowered or supported to actually to the experience as I had it as a frontline worker bringing some of the concerns and challenges experienced by myself as a, somebody who's trying to provide services and link people to resources, uh, I, I did not have a voice. I did not have a voice. I did not feel that even if I brought myself to speak, I didn't feel that my, uh, you know, what I said was reflected or even understood. And so I think there is a big difference between uh, a spaces where people come together who have joint experience and joint sort of a goal and are facilitated by somebody who doesn't necessarily have an agenda of what the conversation is and what the outcome of the conversation is, as opposed to, you know, being able to tick off a box that they had a representation of the people who the conversation is about, but really how meaningful that representation is, is never spelled out. I was actually on something not that long ago, uh, within the last couple of years, where I felt very much the same way that the language that was used, I wasn't understanding the processes that were being used, I didn't understand. Um, I didn't really feel like I was there for any real reason. Everybody wants to talk about how they have, you know, they get input from various ways, but I often sometimes wonder if there isn't an ulterior motive or an agenda that's already like sort of set and being pushed forward. And that is actually to the detriment to the, to the, the spirit of what these boards, advisory committees um, should and need to be. And, and I don't know whether it's bringing together a group of people with the same sort of background that then can, so, you know, when you put doctors and researchers and, you know, finance people on a board with someone with lived experience or, you know, someone who's identifying to the experience, not to their job, it's very intimidating. It's incredibly intimidating. And I actually don't think yeah, as I said, I don't think it's actually to the spirit of what that work is supposed to be about. 
And so I think it's incumbent upon agencies that have these kind of committees, you know, that they really look at what the makeup is of those committees. And I, I also see that like oftentimes it's the same people being on these committees and they're pushing their own agendas and they're being identified as community, but I don't really feel like they are to be perfectly honest. If you're on one of our boards, first of all, I think you have to be a user of that program. So I think that's first and foremost. And we want people to actually be meaningfully involved. So the request isn't just, you know, come to this you know, board meeting and have a light lunch and a meal and we'll give you two tokens and $20 and see you later. No, we actually want them to do some work. So we actually want people to, we want people's impact our input on, on program development and program implementation and evaluation. And we want to hear their ideas, no matter how, you know, strange they may be. And, and we view it as there's no uh, agenda for us. It, you know, it, it's going to be where they take it, where they lead it, but there is work to be done. I did just want to say one thing that keeps going through my mind. I, I, I do think that people in a hospital may have a different view of what needs to happen to improve services than say people who uh, who have actually used the service of the hospital. And that may look very different, but both are equally important. I think what happens sometimes is that they, they don't, they haven't learned how to put those two together and, and merge. Like they're as equally valuable, but different. Like one doesn't come at the expense of the other. Thanks to Jen Broad and Paula Tukey of the South Riverdale Community Health Centre for participating in this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please get in touch at mattersofengagement.com. And don't forget, we now have a listener phone line. The number is 647-812-2909. See the contact page for details. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Angle, with generous financial contribution from the Ontario Sports Support Unit, or OSU, which is jointly funded by the Government of Ontario and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, or CIHR. The views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to the producers or their guests and are not to be considered endorsed by OSU, the Government of Ontario, or CIHR.